everybody. Um, this is another episode of the podcast on D Shot, and I wanted to do at least one podcast that um, revolves around my favorite composer, America's March King, John Philip Sousa, um, and and bring somebody on to kind of talk about it. And um, I'm bringing in the director of the Virginia Grand Military Band, uh, member of the music division at the Library of Congress, and one of the uh, foremost experts on John Philip Sousa. Um, Loris Schischel. Uh, first off, Loris, um, it's an honor to, to talk to you um, finally. I know uh, your uh, old childhood uh, buddy, Dr. Ripley, Dr. Jim Ripley over at Carthage has been trying to get us to, to meet at some point. So it's, it's an honor to kind of talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about John Philip Sousa. Okay, so I'm going to start with kind of maybe talking about our first exposures with about with the music of John Philip Sousa. Um, for me, um, my dad was a trombone player in a community band in, in the Kenosha Racine area. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I guess uh, the, he played in a group for a long time um, called the Racine Concert Band that was led by a guy named Del Ice, who had some sort of connection to the Association of Concert Bands at some point. And uh, something to do with the Souther Scroll mm-hmm. that he was involved with. I don't know if you know Del Ice at all, but uh, he would Del would always close with Stars and Stripes every single summer concert. So that kind of became my favorite piece growing up. And I think over time it was my only favorite. Well, for a brief time in my my life, it was my only favorite piece by Souza up until maybe I got exposed to the, like the. Keith Bryan videotape of the new Sousa band on stage at Wolf Trap. And oh, then, sure. So just, I, I just wanted to kind of start things with what was your kind of first exposures to Sousa's music and where did your kind of passion for that start? It's funny because I started in band, not in music, but in band quite late, probably my sophomore year in high school, I think. Okay. But I remember probably being in kindergarten or first grade and hearing in a very small town in Iowa, uh, the high school band. And I think it's so long ago, I think they were rehearsing the high school cadets and I had no idea who wrote it or anything like that. But I just remember being kind of enthralled with the sound of this music. I think the other piece they played was in the mood by Glenn Miller and became a Glenn Miller fan too. Um, but but I, you know, I kind of came to the band world uh, via piano lessons and all that stuff and started kind of late. But but right away when uh, growing up in Iowa, uh, we had Carl King. Uh, so we tended to play a lot of Carl King marches instead of Sousa marches, because, mm. you know, for Iowa, that's that's our March King there. Um, but I always liked the music. And uh, I remember the band director had a wonderful recording, all Sousa marches played by the Goldman Band, conducted by Richard Franco Goldman. And at that time, there were still quite a few players in Sousa's band, from Sousa's band, who were playing in the Goldman Band. So they were quite authentic, you know, in their interpretations. And I always liked that record a lot. Um, and it was in high school that, uh, I contacted Paul Byerly, who was Seuss's biographer, and he said, well, you should talk to these old guys uh, who are still around, you know, who played with Mr. Sousa. So so I ended up getting to know maybe 40 or 50 of the former players. And that's 
were sort of my interest in Seuss's life and particularly in how he conducted his own music, which is so different than the printed uh, editions that everyone had. And since the Sousa band didn't rehearse a great deal because they were the same players that were engaged year after year, uh, each of the players sort of had their own take on how the, the clarinet section played mm -hmm. the Washington Post. But the trombones had no idea what they were doing and the cornets didn't have any idea what the trombones were doing they just played it the way they've always played it so so i started just taking notes and interviewing these people and finding out that there really was a a, a way that he played his music like he said you know if everyone if everyone's band sounded the way my band does why are they going to buy a ticket to 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 hear my band they'll just go hear someone else so so it was it was a uh, this is sort of a long answer to a short question, but that was sort of my introduction. And then um, before I even started here at the Library of Congress, Seuss's music was already here. Uh, but uh, before the music was shipped down from the Sousa family home up in New York City, it was stored in two large steamer trunks. Now, these are all of his manuscripts, his concert band pieces, but then all of his light operas that he wrote and literally thousands and thousands of pages of handwritten music manuscripts. Um, and some uh, thieves saw that this house, no one was living in this house. In is, is, this, is this the story about kind of uh, the entitled March and how yeah. that was kind of yeah. the, the story that about was the thieves dumping the music on the floor? Yep, they, they broke into this house opened up these these really fancy steamer trunks and all that was inside was a bunch of old music so they dumped the music all out and stole the steamer trunks so they got away with about four hundred dollars worth of steamer trunks and left you know millions of dollars worth of Sue's manuscripts piled up on the floor well what happened was this scrambled all of this music up together and the library for years had tried to you know piece things together i was stationed here i was in the navy at the time um but on my days off i would come down and just go through this music and and uh you know see a page here that was part of his operetta desiree or this was the third page of the band score for el capitan or something and just started putting these these pieces together uh got out of the navy and in 1991, the library announced they were having a lot of job openings. And they said, why don't you apply for one of these jobs and we'll actually pay you for what you've been doing for free. So, so in 1991, I started here. Um, and that stack that was about this tall of unsorted manuscripts, it's down to about maybe about 25 or 30 pages now that I, that, uh, I still look through and try to determine what they were. But uh, but for the most part, we've digitized that music um, in a lot of other SUSE related things that we have here at the library. And those are all up online now and you can download them and, and play them or download them and study them or look at photos of him or read about him and uh, his press clipping books and that sort of stuff. Um, so first section kind of in terms of some other questions, where do you see SUSE in terms of most impactful um, I guess American composers or musicians. I know there's a recording that just came out where Paul Barley was talking to somebody. Uh, might have been was it Harold Spielman or somebody at the Library of Congress? 
that mm. like said that Sousa is like the best composer that America's produced. So where do you see uh, Sousa among composers and musicians in our country's history? Well, except for, except for John Williams, there really isn't an American composer probably of, of quote unquote concert music that's as performed as much as Sousa is. I'll give you an illustration of, of how his music has impact all over the world um, for people. And uh, the story is, is that the, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra, this was probably back in the 1960s, um, did a tour of China. And one of the pieces that they played at the end of each concert was the Stars and Stripes Forever. And uh, you think for you know, a country like China that had been so closed off from the rest of the world, they had no idea who Sousa was. They had no idea what any sort of patriotic, you know, connection this piece had. Um, but it was the same everywhere they went. They play the Stars and Stripes forever and people would stand up and start clapping along with the music. The same thing happened to the National Symphony when they went to Russia. You know, no one had any idea who this composer was or what this piece of music was. And the same exact uh, situation took place. And it says something about a composer who, who can write music that for us sort of represents patriotic, you know, Americana and that sort of stuff. But the music itself has the same impact on, on someone who has no idea about the patriotic background of it that way. Um, and I think, I think John Williams is the sort of same sort of composer is that he's a, a world composer. Everyone in the world has heard John Williams music and, Probably everyone loves it just as much as uh, as as anyone, but uh, I, I would certainly put him up there. There was a I was talking to someone who was doing an interview with the man who orchestrates Stephen Sondheim's musicals, and uh, Sousa's name came up in passing. And uh, this orchestrator said you know, he called Sousa a minor genius. And he said he's he's a lot like Johann Strauss. He does this one thing. You know, for Strauss, it's waltzes, for Sousa, it's marches. Um, but he does it better than anyone else ever has or probably ever will. And, and that's sort of where, where, where I think he sort of that niche that he lives in. Um, I, I was going to ask about biggest impact currently. Do you, what do you think Sousa's biggest impact currently is? It's the, that the music is, is played all over the world uh, and still it still is. You can't say that about a lot of composers, even great composers. A lot of their music isn't played, and Sousa's music is, is you know, you look at a band concert or an orchestra concert or, or something like that. Even, even his operas are, are sometimes performed, not often, but, but they, they still get played. Um, and that says a lot about someone who died in 1932, that their music is alive today as, as it was back then. Okay, I thought of this question last night and I thought it'd be a good question to ask. Um, if Sousa was alive today, how do you think he would have adjusted to kind of music in our kind of media age right now? Um, I, I thought of this because obviously he was such a proponent for live performances. I think mm -hmm. he probably would have loved like the live streaming of, of a concert. Yeah. He, you know, people always talk about that he, he didn't like recorded music. 
I think a lot of that has to do with the, the kind of primitive sounds that he had, that they had back then. But also, I mean, he was one of the first people, he and Victor Herbert organized ASCAP because the, the recording industry basically used their composer's music and didn't pay them anything. So the, the business side of him, you know, didn't like that. But you look, you know, uh, towards the end of the 1920s, um, when radio was, was really the, the great way of getting music out, he was on the radio, you know, every week with his with his concert band. So I, I think he was very pro technology in, in that sense. Um, and he was, you know, his concerts were a mixture of of strictly classical music, you know, Berlioz and Wagner and all those composers. Um, probably a third of the program was that. A third of the program was were featured soloists and such. And then the other third of the program was contemporary music, music that was was popular at the time, whether that was George Gershwin or Jerome Kern or Irving Berlin, but also the the uh, modern American composers, the composers that were alive. Most people heard in the United States here, Richard Strauss's tone poems played for the first time, not by a symphony orchestra, but by by a concert band. That's that's how they were introduced to this music. So so he was playing music from Wagner's Parsifal and great and uh, Grand Forks, uh, you know, here or Keokuk, Iowa, uh, 10 years before it was played at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. So so he was progressive in that sense, too. He wasn't uh, just playing old fuddy-duddy music for old people. Um, I wanted to kind of also, I was watching um, the Captain America First Avenger movie recently, mm -hmm. and I wanted to kind of ask you, I was, I was caught a little bit aback by that movie because of there's two different like literally they're back-to-back -back scenes where one scene is uh like a military like clip thing being played but of all things uh saber and spurs is being played in the background and then shortly after that washington post is being played um but also one of the um as we kind of talk about like pop culture references that include Sousa. Um, one of them that kind of sticks in my head is the water boy with um, the scene of um, Bobby Boucher talking to uh, Coach Klein about getting his manhood back. And in the background is King Cotton. So I guess what is your favorite kind of pop culture type reference to Sousa, Susan March being used in a movie or something like that? Hmm. I haven't really thought about that. Well, I'm always struck that uh, come f uh, Independence Day, you know, every auto dealership in the United States seems to run a commercial that uses the Susan March as the background. Um, I, I guess it, it's not specific, but, but that it's considered so American that way that you can use it as a, as a background for something, for something American. And, uh, you know, I guess the, the commercial, aspects particularly now that the music has gone public domain um a lot of it is available you know for use that way um but the, you can hear it at any time of year too that it's you know it's part of the american culture now yeah that that particular movie caught me off guard because of all things to hear is a susan mm -hmm. march that not everybody has heard and then um and obviously with like last year's, this past year's inauguration with the Green Band playing, um, mm -hmm. 
Jason would be conducting and I would be like, oh, that's this march is this, this march yeah. is that. And that'd be the only thing that I probably paid attention to in the inauguration. Um, I do have some like smaller stories that connect me to Sousa. Um, one of them, I kind of wanted to plug an event that I, I, I'm, I'm trying to hopefully get the fine arts coordinator in Kenosha to get you to guest conduct at some point. Um, as we, we have a couple events every, every year, obviously we didn't have it um, this past year with COVID, um, but uh, I don't know how much you know about like how known Kenosha, Wisconsin is in terms of the music programs. Oh, sure. But, Absolutely. But, uh, Basically, we have Choral Fest, Orchestra Fest. I played an Orchestra Fest like once on trombone, once on tuba. But the big one, or they're both similar events. We also have a jazz festival where they bring in um, noteworthy jazz, some noteworthy jazz artists. Um, but uh, the one that I always played in was Bandorama, and it's on the gymnasium floor, and it's fifth grade to twelfth uh, grade. Uh, ranges in, in between from 1,600 to 1,800 kids on a gymnasium Ooh. floor all at once. And they they start this concert with like a fanfare piece and then the national anthem with pageantry from the Rambler Band and the uh, Band of the Black Watch, which are two of the, um, in terms of the color guards from those bands. Um, and um, they bring a guest conductor in every year. Usually it's a composer or it's a, um, some college director. Um, Dr. Ripley's done it. Um, I'm going to bring up Laura Rectroth at some point during this to talk about a story that involves nobles of the Mystic Shrine, but I don't mm -hmm. know how you're going to react to that that particular story. But um, they they start with the fanfare and the national anthem, and then they go from basically the stages of a musician from fifth the fifth grade beginner band to the high schools, um, the eighth grade band, the high school high school bands get guests, get conducted by the guest conductor. They do like one one run through and then a second run through and then they do they close it with stars and stripes hmm. uh, with a festival version of that. Uh, looking back at that now, I hated the festival arrangement now because of the that has that trumpet thing that Susan never wrote. Um, oh yeah. Um, but anyways, um, when we have Bandorama, I would flip the stand around during the last uh, trio section and play the trombone counter melody by memory. Um, one of the other stories I had is of my uh, seventh and eighth grade band director. And the first time I met her, um, she, we, the question I asked was, what's your favorite Susan March? And she says, I don't have one. And the reason was she was a French horn player. Um, and she tried to get me to listen to other composers like John Cage or um, Philip Glass. I never gravitated towards that. I think I gravitated more towards some of the recordings that Keith was recording mm -hmm. and um, the Fetrick Fennell recordings. And, and it just kind of grew to other composers that um, those guys had conducted on. Um, but I'm going to transition with um, uh, the University of Illinois story, even though I, I would like to talk about the, uh, the Laura Rexroth Nobles of the Mystic Shrine story, but the simple moral of that story is if you're in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and you're playing anything by Sousa, do not say that some, somebody in your audience has not heard something by Sousa. Oh, good. Because um, uh, they're playing Nobles of the Mystic Shrine, and she announced it as you probably haven't heard the Sousa March. And I kind of went and said, doubt it. And then we had a, like, I outsmarted her and Sousa um, saying like something about, um, about how 
one of the recordings I had in Nobles is the recording that Susan actually conducted on, and she thought sure. there was there was she thought there was one or two recordings of Sousa when really there's just the six or eight. And that's that march was premiered here in Washington D.C. at our old baseball stadium, Griffith Stadium, and that was the largest group that he ever conducted. It was about a band of about six thousand Shriners, um, and Henry Fillmore's band was there and played for that for that same event but that was the biggest ensemble he ever conducted was here in washington
So I'm going to transition as you kind of talked about Paul Barley before, but um, I wanted to transition with kind of the bigger, one of the bigger stories that I have with Sousa. Um, so the Racine concert band used to hold a um, artist series where they bring notable guests in. Um, Brian Bowman played with that band on one of them. Um, but one of them was um, this woman named Patricia Backus who. Oh, I know Pat well. Um, it was like a female Mr. Uh, Sousa type of thing. Yep. And she played Helen Bride, May Butler. Uh, she played Bride, Bride the Waves and then conducted Semper Fidelis. Well, we were, she was talking to my parents and I after the concert. And she said, You got to go see the University of Illinois Sousa archives. So um, we went that this particular summer was kind of neat because I got to see the new Sousa band live. And then later in the summer, go to this archives. And I, imp- I don't know who was there in 2002 at the archives, um, somebody new, but I impressed her so much with um, my knowledge of Sousa that she gave me a free copy of the um, works of John Philip Sousa book. Oh, yeah. And then um, obviously, you know, those file cabinets and file cabinets of music. She allowed me to pick something and get it photocopied. Um, and my biggest regret of it is I didn't choose a complete score of Stars and Stripes because that would have been cool. But I chose, for some reason, I chose the trombone part of Hands Across the Sea. Oh, okay. Um, so, um, and then she called, called the University of Illinois Band Program. We met the directors of that. So I guess the transition, though, Paul Barley, like, when did that kind of friendship start? Um, how much did you learn from, about Sousa from him? And then how much did it add to that friendship that I think both of you were tuba players? Well, that's how I first met Paul. I met him, I think I started my sophomore year. I think I was my junior or senior year. Um, I went to a, a convention of circus musicians called the Windjammers. And then they play and record circus music to preserve it. And seated on my left, I was down at the bottom of the section, uh, was a tall guy from Ohio named Paul Byerly. And that's where we first met, was sharing the same music stand. And he had just finished his biography of Henry Fillmore at the time. So we became pen pals and then uh, then became best friends. Paul, Paul truly was one of my best friends. We became very close when we were working on the PBS special, If You Knew Sousa. And I have, uh, I have a DVD copy of that. Oh, good. Yeah, that, that we worked on that film probably for two years, putting that together. And uh, uh, but I've, I've knew Paul super well until the day he died. Um, and actually, as we speak, I'm redoing the works of John Philip Sousa to put in all these new pieces that that I discovered here when I was sorting out the music and and other, you know, Paul and I were working on to at the time he died. So I'm just finishing that up. So we'll have a new, new version of that with all new information in it. But uh, no, I, you can't talk about Sousa at all and not talk about Paul Byerly because uh, uh, here's someone who was not a, uh, an author, not a musicologist, not anything like that, just someone who was passionately interested. And he kept waiting for someone to write a book on Sousa and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally he said, well, I'll just do it myself. So he did that as a, as a hobby uh, because his full-time job was he was an aeronautical engineer 
um, for NASA, stationed there in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And his other job was he was the principal tuba player for decades in the Columbus Symphony there. So that was something he worked on in the evenings and took his vacations and spent, you know, all his vacation money to go visit Seuss's daughter in Long Island and do all the research. And, and there would be no way you could have done the biography that Paul did because all of those people, you know, that he interviewed were, would be long dead then. So, so the story, we, we owe so much of, of Mr. Seuss's story to Paul Byerly. Um, I, I'm going to add in that I always try to get that, uh, that uh, if you knew Sousa um, DVD and uh, obviously the movie on Sousa. And now since I got a, 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 a DVD copy of that uh, new Sousa band concert again. Oh, good. Um, I tried to get all those in on Sousa's birthday. Um, and for a long time, I also tried to uh, listen to as much Sousa on Sousa's birthday as I possibly could. And I think mm -hmm. when I was a senior in college, I got through the 14 volumes that, that were released at the time of Keith series. And then, yep. but it took, that took forever to well, kind of get through three, that music. There were three really good major recording series of, of Seuss's music. The first one was the U.S. Marine Band under Colonel Jack Klein. Those came out, I think, on 18 albums. And yeah. that was the concert music and the and the marches. And then Leonard Smith recorded all of the quick step marches with the Detroit Concert Band. And then Keith came. And now I think they're on volume 26 or something for the Naxo series. And I've known, I, thought it, I thought it was 23. And that the, is it? Yeah, it, there's there are a few more in the can because I just I've I've worked with Keith on we published a lot of editions of the Susan music and I've, I've known Keith probably as as long as I've known Paul Byerly. So we we talk almost weekly and uh, he's one of my best friends. And if you if you want to hear uh, Sousa in the correct style, you can't do anything better than to to go to a new Sousa band concert or listen to Keith's recordings because they're 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 so wonderful. Um, so obviously going off of that, um, kind of just how did that relationship with Keith start, and then how did these kind of arrangements that obviously you guys did together at one point, but now you've mm -hmm. done it separately. Um, how did those kind of get to start? And then who specifically from Sousa's band did you guys both talk to that to kind of get the information on those on those arrange on those arrangements? I got to know Keith uh, via Edmund Wall, who was the concertmaster of the Sousa band, probably the last I got uh, via Edmund 12 years that they were in existence. And Eddie was was a, a wonderful person. Um, and lived to be a ripe old age. And I, I talked to him on the phone and I was asking about, you know, did you do this? Where did you play down an octave? Where did this happen? That sort of stuff. And he said, you know, why don't you talk to Keith Bryan? He's the one, he's been talking to all of us and he's actually playing this music now. Keith had just uh, retired from Yale University at the time. He was just starting to do these concerts, primarily with symphony orchestras. Um, but that's how I got to know Keith was through Eddie Wall. Um, and probably, I'm trying to think when we first started publishing, because we worked together when we were at Barnhouse, um, when they published the, the, the init initial batch of the, kind of the top 20 or 25 mm. um, most popular ones. And we worked on those probably for 12, 15 years 
putting those out. And, you know, it wasn't just the editing of the music, but then the huge amount of writing in the front, um, you know, about the pieces, you know, how what sort of percussion instruments were used at the time, modern ways to to, you know, emulate that sort of sound. And it was a great deal of fun. The only thing that why we went separate ways was uh, Frederick Fennell and his wife, Betty Ludwig. Betty was a publisher uh, and owned Ludwig Music. And she was thinking about selling the company. And Frederick said that Betty wouldn't sell unless I would make the switch over from Barnhouse to Ludwig Music to keep an eye on things. And so reluctantly, I went over to Ludwig, but uh, Betty said that she wanted to publish the keep publishing the Sousa marches in the, in the, you know, the uh, keep it going after, after Keith and I did, but Keith and I work on, on stuff together all the time still. So it wasn't a split of any sort. Mm. It was really just a, a business situation. And he's, Keith is almost 90 years old now and still going strong. So. I, I know we're, we're pushing in Kenosha that when obviously the Kenosha pops and the Racine concert band are celebrating yeah. their centennials on um, this next year. And the idea that I've thrown out to Craig Gall, who's the musical director of the Kenosha pops is to have Keith come down and do a, yeah. do some sort of concert um, with the Kenosha pops in that style. Um, one of the things that I, I kind of, um, had been interested in that you and Keith kind of talk about in terms of Susan Marches is the foreshadowing. And I can tell it in Stars and Stripes. I can see it absolutely with the obvious example in Ferris to the Fair. Um, my favorite example of the foreshadowing is the Forche Tower Washington Memorial oh, March sure. where, it, where it's da, the, da, da, uh, da. Yep, the Woody Woodpecker Lick. Sure. Um, I, I just wanted the um ask you about what are some other examples of of this foreshadowing oh it's all through the you, you know uh you can see we have so many of his sketches i think i even have an example of one here um well it was here but um Usually the last thing that he wrote when he was working on a march would be the introduction. So lots of times uh, these sort of little fragmented things, whether it's a rhythmic thing or a harmonic uh, quote or all these sort of things, lots of times he'd finish the march and then write the introduction or go back and throw out the original introduction that he had written because these things sort of come out organically. Mm. And I don't think he actually actively thought about it. I don't think composers work that way. Um, an example of that is someone went up to Richard Rogers, the great Broadway composer and said, do you know, in that song, you take the opening phrase and when you get to the chorus, it's the same intervals, but it's upside down. Kind and, of like uh, Susan, kind of like with Sousa with Washington Post, and sure. King Cotton, where it's the yep. the trios or dot eight um, yeah. dot you know that sort of rhythm. And Richard Rogers said, "Oh, I wish you wouldn't have told me that because I I don't think that way when I compose. Uh, I think that's something that com that very good composers just do naturally that way. Um, but I think also that you know, we have so much of his, all, almost all of his original manuscripts are here, just a few at the Marine Band and some at the University of Illinois, but the, the great majority of them are here, uh, along with just stacks of sketches. And I think there was hardly a day 
that went by from the time he was probably a teenager until the day he died that he didn't write some sort of music down. You know, so he always had little notebooks in his pocket um, and would pull those out and just write little sketches out. 95% of that music he never did anything with. Um, but you can see that he was a he was a, an incredibly picky composer is that he sometimes get through sketching a march, maybe even starting to orchestrate it. And uh, something in his mind said, eh, this isn't this isn't as good as I want it to be. And he'd throw it back in the trunk. Now he might come back to that material and rework it. You know, some marches came very fast. You know, he could compose them in a few days and score them. Other marches took five or six years. Uh, you know, the, you keep coming back to it and working on it. Uh, but he, he was like all the great composers, very self-critical and very picky. And so, so I think that's what you see. Fairest of the fair is obviously the most, um, you know, is the most obvious example of, of what I call self-borrowing or mm. building on, on a thematic type thing. But even the rhythm, look at the introduction to Stars and Stripes. Dom, dom, but a bomb. That rhythm right there. Yes. You know, Scottish kick, basically. Dom, but a bomb, ba bomb, bomb. It comes back in the second strain that way. Um, and there's and there's the thing of the dogfight that uh, Keith explains is backwards. Yeah. And that's and I think that's him. I think that's Susan doing what comes naturally not always easily, but what comes naturally to a good composer. And he had the same sort of training. His teacher, Mr. Benkert here in, in Washington, was trained at the, the Vienna Conservatory and studied privately with a with a German composer late named Lynn Painter. And uh, we have some of Sousa's, actually Sousa used some of Mr. Benkert's textbooks that he used when he was here. And it was the same training at the time that that Brahms had gotten and Bruckner had gotten species counterpoint, you know, through base, all the, 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 the kind of meat and potatoes of of being a 19th century composer. So so it's not a surprise that, that he uh, was able to set these pieces up and tie them together so well that way, too, because that's what good composers do. Um, I, I thought I'd add in it's kind of neat that the foreshadowing thing is something that was present throughout Sousa's um, compositional life, obviously, because like talk about Ferris the Fair, but then one of them that I had noticed it in is that Northern Pines March where the mm -hmm. part of the dot part of the dogfight is right there in the introduction. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's an interesting case in point because he worked hard on the Northern Pines that March did not come easily for him and there are gobs of started versions um, full scores, you know, the orchestral version and that that march did not come easily to him. It's not one of those that, you know, just sort of bingo and he wrote it down. He, he worked he worked a long time on it. And you can tell um, just from the amount of stuff he threw out from that. And, you know, it's a big stack like that. So so it it, it was not all as he, as he might say, inspiration. It was a lot of perspiration, too.
Um, so for this next section, um, I thought we'd talk about maybe favorite Sousa marches or favorite non-Sousa marches or some of his other compositions. But I wanted to get you to kind of react to, I have a little bit of a list of my top 20 or so of Sousa marches, but I'm mm -hmm. going to start with my honorable mentions. So I know you're probably going to be like, oh, where's, why, why isn't this one on the list or why is that oh. one on the list? But uh, my honorable mentions are Kansas Wildcats, the Daughters mm -hmm. of Texas, Pride of Pittsburgh, Pride of the Wolverines, Globe and Eagle, Sound Off, uh, Corcoran Cadets, Prince Charming. I really like that Homeward Bound march with the, mm -hmm. some of the stuff in the low brass. Um, the Federal, I'm going to throw in Pet of the Petticoats. I like that one as one of the, the capo marches. Um, and then I'm going to go from my... From 20 to 11, I'm going to go Legionnaires, Black Horse Troop, Golden Jubilee, the Chanty Man's March, mm -hmm. uh, the White Rose, La Florida Sevilla, um, Atlantic City Pageant, Invincible Eagle, Wisconsin Forward Forever. Obviously, I'm from Wisconsin, so I like that one. Um, Fairest of the Fair. Um, I guess any of those before I get into my top 10 kind of jump out to you. Well, I've, you know, people ask me if i have favorites and i don't because because if i say oh black horse troop is my favorite and then i'll hear hail to the spirit of liberty and i'll say oh no that's a lot better than that yeah. so it changes every day so i just go go with what i say that day um there aren't too many that i don't like some of the early ones i don't conduct very much because i don't think they were as good as, as some mm. of the later ones. Um, but I think I've, I'm sure I've done all of them at one point or another on a concert. Um, cause of my band here in Washington has been going for, I think 26 years and I've been conducting in Cleveland for almost the same amount of time. So it's a lot of concerts to play them. And we, we play five or four or five, at least on every concert, not just Sousa, but, but a lot of Sousa marches that way. All right. Um, my, 10 through the top one, Washington Post. I have the University of Illinois March mm -hmm. in my top 10, the Gallant 7th, the Entitled March, which is obviously one that you you uh, found. But I'm going to say something about that one. I, I think that's the most beautiful trio in any Susan March. I, I'm glad you know, I, I like the trio. I'm, I always have mixed feelings about that we got that into print because I don't think he was finished with it, but I'm I'm if we wouldn't have someone else would have so so i'm i'm glad and i do i think there are certain parts of it uh, that are really quite quite spectacular um the next one is the uh the next two on this list kind of go um towards like low brass stuff and that would be um the glory of the yankee navy mm -hmm. and, the and the diplomat mm -hmm. and i felt like i had to put stars and stripes somewhere so i put that at number four um and then Pathfinder of Panama, um, the Nobles of the Mystic Shrine, and then I've kind of decided on, cited on I think what would be my favorite Susan March would be the New Mexico March because it's mm. just written so much differently than the other ones, and then there's all the Native American stuff in it, yeah. and that uniqueness of putting the New Mexico um, state song in it. Just it's a medley that. march, kind of a little history of of uh, New Mexico in three and a half minutes. So I guess any any of those surprise you that I would have in, in that list? No, 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 no. They they be on my list too, probably in different orders or something. But you know, each what's interesting is 
and and I'm a big fan of Henry Fillmore. I'm a big fan of Carl King. Um, sometimes, you know, you listen to a Carl King march, it you can say oh, that's a wonderful march. It reminds me of this piece or something mm. like that. Each of the Sousa marches has a, a kind of a unique flavor to them. Hail to the Spirit of Liberty isn't anything like the Atlantic City pageant, and it isn't anything like the Washington Post. He kind of reinvented himself. There's certain little things that he did, little rhythm, rhythmic things, or he, he surprised chords or something like that, that that he used. But each of them is kind of special um, that way. And, and that, you know, for someone writing in a restrictive form, which is a short form, it has its own form, um, he reinvents himself every time he puts pen to paper, pretty much. And that's pretty hard to do when you're when you're talking about, you know, a strict form in a short amount of time to, to get what you need to say said. So I, I think that's that's something special about him. Um, I guess like um, what are your favorite non Susan marches? Because I feel like I'm kind of like the same way that I am with like Sousa marches where I like a lot of a lot, lot of not so known marches. Like if it's Carl Kane, I like Sal's Floto Triumphal. Mm -hmm. I like the Huntress. Um, I'm trying to think of what are the Fillmore marches. Um, His Honor or yeah, uh, you know, Circus uh, Circus B, mm -hmm. Rolling, Rolling Thunder. Thunder. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say in terms of like Evan Franco Goldman, I would say um, there's a march on one of the finale recordings that are really like that. I, I don't know if there's any other recording out of it. It's the uh, interlocking bowl. Oh, the interlocking bowl. Yeah. yeah, that one. Oh, sound the call for dear old interlocking land of the stately pine. Yep, they yep. sing it in the trio. Yep. Um, the Illinois march that I think Goldman wrote mm -hmm. is a nice one too. Um, I'm very then, fond of the Goldman marches very fond of them I, I play them a lot because the the except for on the mall and chimes of liberty most of the other ones don't get played very much uh, a dandy is one called onward upward which is a, a terrific piece it actually came out of a themes uh, it was a theme for a radio program he was doing for um an oil company so it was a it was a radio theme and he expanded it out now goldman is a little different from susa is that goldman came up with all these tunes for these things but he was not able to arrange his own music so he would uh, employ like ml lake or eric Leitzen would do the actual band arrangement of it. but mike lake or eric Leitzen could never have written some of these really snappy tunes that Goldman would come up with. Um, but uh, Goldman's very high on my list of, of favorite composers. Um, I'd say like in terms of symphonic marches, obviously Valder's Father of Victory, mm -hmm. Florentiner. Um, one of the my favorite symphonic marches is that Camille Sunsun's um, March Military Frankies. Oh. Yes, I love, I, love, I, yep. I love that piece because there's so so much. There's a lot of cool brass stuff in that. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it's it's interesting. Uh, Sousa and Saint-Saëns were good friends and actually met each other at the Panama Pacific Exposition because uh, that was the exposition, um, kind of celebrating the opening of the Panama Canal. And Saint-Saëns had written a piece called Hail California for the same World's Fair and Sousa had written the Pathfinder of Panama. So they, they actually, there's a photograph of them 
together in San Francisco in 1915? Um, I guess any of the non-March um, compositions that um, Sousa wrote that you um, grow really fond of, or I guess. Oh, uh, I like some of the, I think he was primarily a dance composer. So I like his uh, Gliding Girl Tango. Um, other pieces, uh, Fox Trotty wrote called Peaches and Cream. Mm. Um, I like, I like With Pleasure Dance Hilarious. That's, that's a favorite. wonderful, wonderful piece. Yeah. He, he wrote a lot of dance music. I mean, I think he was primarily a, a dance. But what is a march but a dance? It's, mm. it's one of our oldest dances. That's all. I think um, some of the stuff from the suites I, I end up enjoying, like Mars and Venus. And, mm -hmm. uh, we played Flashing Eyes at Andalusia at a Kenosha Pops concert. Sure. Where the band played it. Um, I the last say, movement of impressions at the movies. I use that a lot on concerts. Uh, balance, balance songs balance. and part partners mm -hmm. it seems like that piece always seems like at the end it seems like it's going to go somewhere else yeah the uh if you want to hear some of that music i did a concert with the u.s army band um and it's on youtube and i think it's celebrate susa or something like that but they played a lot of the non-march compositions on there basically i worked with the conductor of the army band for that and the really really good performances of, of those type of pieces like like uh, Balance Hall or, or The Gliding Girl and, and those sort of things. I really also like the uh, the Dwellers of the Western World mm -hmm. suite as a whole, I think is one of his best suites. Yeah. But also I, I, the movement I like about from that one is um, the middle movement, which kind of introduces that Messiah of the Nations piece. Yeah. Um, but just the back and forth between it being a little bit light and then being energetic with the bump, 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 that part. So yeah. I think that, that would be one of them. Jazz America, which is on Key Series. Mm -hmm. I've gravitated. It's a medley. Yeah. Um, the humor, a lot of those. The humoresque on Look for the Silver Lining has got to be like one of the most interesting ways that you ever ended a piece. Mm-hmm. That's Klangfarben, that's called, where the melody goes throughout the whole orchestra that way. Okay. Um, I guess, what are your favorite recordings of Sousa's music? Oh, there's so many of them, many of Keith's. Uh, I like my own recordings of, of them. Uh, I think for style, if you want to hear what a professional band should sound like, um, with the right instrumentation, cornets playing cornet parts and trumpets playing trumpet parts and the right percussion instruments, all that. It's very hard. And Paul would agree with me. Paul Byerly would agree that the Leonard Smith recordings are, are, are really the top drawer recordings, but the Marine band recordings are excellent. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good in Fennell. I like those. Fennell had his own ideas about playing Sousa. And they're just as legitimate as anyone else's too, but uh, it's pretty hard to beat the Eastman Wind Ensemble, you know. Um, I guess I, the ones I listen to, I say I listen to Keith series kind of almost every day. Um, mm -hmm. The most recent Marine Band series with all the marches being released, I listen yeah. to on the regular. Probably not listen to that. I probably listen to that more than uh, the Leonard B. Smith thing, probably because I probably gravitated so much towards listen to the performance practice side of things um i think one of the the other recordings 
that's recent. I like that Sousa stories recording. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've got that one. I don't have that one. The The reason why I like the Leonard Smith recordings is, is the, they play it in the correct March style. Okay. Now, Keith had a lot of different European bands playing on those. And, and some of that style, which is playing on the short side of the note, you don't play notes long, you know, you don't ta, 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 that sort of thing. That's if you want to hear stylistically how this music should be played, uh, you can't do any better than Leonard Smith. And, and also Fennell and the Eastman Wind Ensemble. Uh, that way is it's a crisp marcato style there's nothing sissified about it um not to say the other recordings are sissified or anything but but it's really the the um the hallmark and this you know leonard smith was the last professional concert band here in the united states that was a, a all pro those were all symphony guys who played with leonard for years so it's 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 they're really if you want to know how to play any kind of march properly that i would strongly recommend those recordings is there like a what would be your like preference in terms of like playing some of those arrangements that you guys have or just Sousa in general and playing it either in an indoor setting or an outdoor setting oh it works both places I mean unless unless you're what we would call here in Washington doing a path opener which is you know standing in formation at the White House or something they might not necessarily you might not necessarily do all the waving out of the instruments and, and things like that. That really is for outdoor sort of playing, but, you know, in a beautiful band shell outside, they work perfectly well doing it the, the, the correct way. Thank you. 
Um, I thought one of the the last sections here would be just hit on the uh, you're obviously the music you're part of the music division at the Library of Congress. You kind of hit on part of what I was going to ask in this with how much Sousa is um, in that in that live at the Library of Congress. But um, I wanted to kind of also ask about like some of the other composers that maybe you have the most like the most complete works of in that in that with the music division. Oh, that boy, that do you have a couple of hours? Uh, the Library of Congress is the, is not only the world's largest library, it's the largest um, collection. It's the largest repository in the history of mankind of human knowledge and creativity. It's, it's, it's enormous. There are three large buildings here on Capitol Hill and all sorts of numerous other buildings throughout the Washington DC area here that just store all of it. Um, but as far as the music division is concerned, we have like the complete archive of Leonard Bernstein and uh, which came in, I think two tractor trailer loads, you know, the complete archive of uh, Aaron Copeland, um, William Schumann, David Diamond. Um, you can talk about old composers, uh, you know, the man who was considered, you know, at the turn of the century, last century, as the greatest American composer was Edward McDowell. So his manuscripts are here. Um, uh, I guess any like more recent composers? Is there like any Leroy Anderson there? Is there? Oh, John well, it, Williams. If part of it is is that we're not only a repository of manuscripts, but in this building that I work in here, the Madison building is the United States Copyright Office. So any music that's copyrighted and submitted or registered for copyright comes here to the library. And then we're sort of parasites. We grab all of that music and that's part of our collection here. There, you know, there's a number that's sort of floated around and it's not even true, but we sort of guess because um, we don't really keep track of how much is here. But it's it's I'm sure it's upwards of 25 million different kinds of pieces of music here. And it's not just music. We collect um, for the performing arts. So that would be theater and that would be dance and all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, someone like Stephen Sondheim, you know, his his archive will be here at the libraries someday but we're working with young composers right now to get their music here too um and one of the things we did during the during the uh, covid situation was we started because composers were writing pieces you know for people to play you know online mm -hmm. to get together so uh um uh, we started a collection of of uh performing arts materials, whether that's theater or dance or music of things created around the, around the epidemic that way. So we have a collection of that sort of material, whether it's a you know, ballet troupe doing everything six feet apart or um, Frank to Kelly redid some of his pieces so that they could be played by small groups, you know, that way for, for the school situation, Julie Giroud was another composer who has kind of a band following um, very popular with the band crowd. So, so that music is here too. So it's, it's, uh, and we have jazz and we have, uh, you know, uh, contemporary, you know, the real most modernistic far out type of music along with, uh, you know, what uh, 
uh, actually the guy who wrote the uh, musical um, Alexander Hamilton was down here before before we shut down because of the virus, and he was working on a on a, a musical that was written by Jonathan Larson, the guy who wrote Rent, and that's going to come out now on Netflix, I think, and it's called Tick Tick Boom. Um, so it's it's a it's an eclectic mix. I mean, there's stuff here for everyone, and a lot of it's online. Literally millions and millions of pieces of music, photographs. Um, uh, letters you know between copeland and bernstein whatever it's all been digitized and are up online uh, alongside or just down the hall most of the president's papers have been digitized and so you can look at abraham lincoln's correspondence and such so so it's it's a big big place and we try to do big things okay i, I think i was gonna end it with that um obviously um gotta gotta plug yeah Kenosha's got to get you to be the guest conductor of, of Bandorama <laughs> at some point. I've been talking to Scott Plank or messaged him. I, I said the two people I would like to see guest conduct that festival are you and uh, Michael Colburn, the former director. Of the oh, Mike's band. a good friend of mine. So, and he's just down down in Indiana, just south of you there. And okay. so, no, I'd love to come because my mom actually, I'm from Iowa, but my mom just moved from Iowa. She's now a, a Wisconsin person. Now she, two, um, she and my sister are in uh, Prairie du Chien, right on the river there. So, so it'd be a nice excuse to come see my friends in, in Wisconsin. And it, actually, one of my favorite composers and one of my best friends is up in New Glarus there. And that's, uh, that's uh, Larry Dan, who I know a lot of band folks no Larry up there in, in New Glarus. So, and they have very good beer up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'll say if you, you came and guest conducted, I'll see you and, uh, and, and Jim Ripley could reconnect as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. I was home in August um, for my dad's funeral and it was just nice to be back uh, in the Midwest because uh, that's where my roots are. So. All right. Um, thanks, Loris. Thanks uh, to kind of talk to you about Sousa and actually uh, meet you. Um, thanks for joining me on this episode. You bet. My pleasure.
Thank <laughs> you. 